0: Hello and welcome back to the Royal Horticultural Society's gardening podcast. I'm Sean Thomas, Garden Visits Editor of our magazine for members, The Garden. Today's podcast is steeped in the rich sights, smells and tastes of the season as we sample some of the highlights of the recent London Autumn Garden Show with its fascinating displays, unusual nurseries, talks and practical workshops. Later on, we'll be hearing from our inspirational floral artist in residence, whose show-stopping flower pieces were attracting attention both inside and outside the exhibition halls. Plus, birdwatching and comedy legend Bill Oddie shares some memories of his personal gardening pleasures. Filling both the Lindley and Lawrence Halls in London's Vincent Square, the Autumn Show is always full of surprises and ambitious feats of design. This year, visitors were treated to the breathtaking sight of an edible indoor forest created by designer John Davis. It was an atmospheric world of unusual and seasonal edibles, from crab apples, herbs and chili and guavas to an array of hostas and fungi. Throughout the show John led visitors on guided tours to explain the principles of productive permaculture and forest gardening that were the basis for the design.
1: When you are putting together a forest garden you have to have a real kind of a depth of knowledge of the space and and time, and it's about encouraging people to take more time and think about the spaces they're using and connect to those spaces. So when we created and put this installation together, we wanted to create that feeling of a bit of age. So we've dressed the space with a lot of leaf litter, we've got the mushrooms and the moss and the lichen here as well, and lots of rotten wood, which will make it look that aged and, and feeling that you get, that kind of a holistic feeling you get from being in a forest environment, but also just knowing that This is a really productive environment where there's loads of different gourmet produce here that you can really enjoy so a forest garden is uh, working with the ideas of how a forest works itself so you have a, a tiered system in a forest so if you look at the the dynamics of it you will have the higher trees and then you have the canopy trees then you may have shrubs herbaceous layers ground cover and then there'll be roots and mushrooms uh, and there'll be, be some vines involved in that and so what a forest garden works with is trying to understand that dynamic and how we can recreate that in this quite a small space to get as much produce going on that works works together and the idea is to create and design self-sustainable systems so you're looking at how nature does things and what kind of plants work together and what kind of environments so that you can have a little bit less maintenance, you don't need as much control and let things work together in harmony and that also really encourages biodiversity into the space um, which helps with the health of the general uh, landscape. Um, so within this space we've we've created different planting zones so we have some open aspect zones where you can have more of your uh, herbaceous and your flowers and things like uh, rosemary and thyme and so quite open and well-drained but then we've also created these beautiful contours in the space that then lead down into a bog garden aspect where you can have really beautiful water edibles uh, and there's a load of ornamental edibles in here as well so a lot of plants that you will see in your garden and not necessarily know are edible so we have like the Liriope muscari, which has got the edible root the hostas when they come up in the spring they have a lovely leaf that emerges and you can take those and put them into a stir fry or something the sedum leaves have got a lovely edible leaf that you can have in a salad they have a really nice lemony taste to them and then we've got a lot of mint to kind of work as a matrix, strawberry plants to work as a matrix that knits the, the soil together, keeps the weeds at bay. But that's not to say that we have also left the weeds as well, because a lot of them have a nutritious value and are edible. So we have in here our dandelions, our clover, um, our wood sorrel, we have cow parsley. So what's really uh, interesting about this space as well is that most of these edibles that we have are perennial. What you do, you're just putting in the, the ground for, you know, what the first year until they settle in. But then some of these stock here you could have for 15 years with taking harvest every time, but you don't have to do anything too, you know. There's things like skirit here, and skirit is a, a, a Tudor uh, root veg that we used to eat before potatoes. Uh, and it's kind of a cross between a, a carrot and a parsnip. Really interesting, thin, long, white, but quite sweet, you know. It's got a beautiful umbellifer on it as well so it's a really nice edimental you know it's got a really beautiful ornamental quality but then it's also got this really tasty produce underneath uh affini, which is uh, the chinese artichoke again you've got these really cool they're like water chestnuts and they they look a uh, little like grubs you know really interesting food really different so easy to grow and so many of these things in general you know we're talking I think there's something like 50,000 edibles uh, that, that are in, in the world and we only cultivate something like a hundred. Um, so we're trying to promote the idea that there's a lot more out there than we know, than we are used to. We need to educate to kind of really expand that and at the moment with this garden we're searching a little bit more towards the gourmet produce, maybe the things that chefs might work, you know, like we've got a pine tree here, you know, not many of us are going to start kind of chomping on the, the, the needles but they're actually edible, they can be used in things like pastas and infuse the food, even the inside of the bark, uh, gourmet chefs are now infusing their food with to get that real forest taste, you know, which is really interesting. We've got juniper in here, Uh, loads of different crab apples, uh, rowan, so the sorbus edulis is edible, Uh, hawthorns, loads of things to make jellies and jams. Uh, We've got hops growing up here. There's even kiwis, which is uh, an interesting one and not necessarily you think could grow, but you know, the warmer the weather is uh, these days, we're seeing that we're able to get it to that fruiting position. And if we're creating our own little microclimates in London, especially, and you're getting against the hot wall, they're going to be fruiting up. So it's interesting to see how things are changing there as well, you know. Natural mimicry is something that's very interesting and understanding how nature does things Uh, and so a lot of observation of nature um, is something we should get more into you know seeing how things do it rather than putting our own imprint and thinking oh that needs more more compost or in there or more feeding or I'll spray the insects off that one because that's going to do that actually observing how things work in their natural environment and what they like uh, and encouraging a really biodiverse space where there's rotten logs for insects and there's boggy areas for frogs and uh, pollinators for all all different kinds of insects because insects are really on the decline uh, and we really really need to encourage this to really take off you know getting the bees in here to take care of the uh, the fruiting trees etc so if you look at a biodiversity system within a garden space, if you can create a really interesting diverse range of planting, then you're going to get a diverse range of insects that are going to take care of that environment and create a really nice natural balance, you know. And so you may be worried that some, your, your aphids are over something but then the ladybirds will take care of that and the frogs will take care of the slugs and it will create a really nice balance, you know.
0: John Davies in his edible forest garden One of the highlights of the London shows are the practical workshops. These masterclasses offer expert, hands-on demonstrations of a range of activities, from creating decorative flower globes to specific horticultural techniques. One of the most popular this year was the avocado workshop.
2: Hi, I'm Joseph Ford and today we're standing outside the Lindley Library in Westminster and uh, we're at the RHS Taste of Autumn show, which is really quite a beautiful show at this time of year. Obviously with the uh, fruits and flowers and all the fantastic foliage that's going on inside, it looks a real treat. I'm uh, doing a workshop for the RHS, which is a free workshop, which is quite interesting actually. They provide all these lovely things inside the show for people to be interactive with. And the one I'm doing is actually based on sowing avocados from seed. And they really like this idea at the moment because it's becoming very fashionable again. In fact, if you sort of remember back in uh, in the day when we were kids and we used to stick the three cocktail sticks into your avocado and then suspend it above some water and then it would grow away which was really quite fun we find that was going to be a health and safety nightmare so in fact I, today I am just halving the avocados letting everybody take the avocado away and eat it for their lunch and then we're sowing the seed in some compost and giving it to, to them to take home so that they can grow it in their windowsills first of all let's get the germination right so in fact actually uh, they germinate much much better and much quicker if they come straight out of the fruit I have a massive basket of fruit on the table, which is really, really fantastic. Looks amazing. And then people are just grabbing their individual fruit, halving them, and the reason that's really good is because that keeps the stone moist and ready to germinate immediately afterwards. If they dry out at all, then of course, that's going to inhibit their germination chances. So the old technique of sort of uh, suspending it above water with the cocktail sticks was a sort of 50-50 chance. If you didn't have the water right up to the bottom of the, the stone, to the seed, then it wasn't necessarily going to automatically root down. Whereas this way is putting it into the compost and keeping it moist and keeping it tied up in a plastic bag and keeping it really, really warm, then that's going to really ensure that you're not going to have to worry about keeping it moist throughout its germination period, and it will just romp away and grow. And then when it does start growing, of course, then yeah, if you're not gonna give it enough light, then it's only gonna have one or two leaves on it. If you put it out in the light, and then it's gonna really flourish, it'll start bushing out and and filling out with foliage and and looking amazing for you. And then of course, it will just want to push up and away. If you think about in their natural habitats, they are forest trees, of course. And when you're a young tree, you're gonna be surrounded by so many other mature trees around you. And so your first initial growth is going to be of going straight up and not producing any side branches. And of course we want side branches on it because they have all the beautiful foliage and they keep it nice and down at our eye level so we can appreciate how beautiful the plant is. So if you cut it by half, the the shoot, when it's produced a couple of leaves, cut that shoot by half its length, it should sprout out and it should produce much shorter shoots either side, which can then be pruned again in the following part of the season and you can get a much bushier plant at a lower level. Ah, can you get into fruit? Um, (laughs) That is a tricky question, because I think actually earlier this year in the Garden Magazine, there was an incidence of the Chelsea Physic Garden telling us that one of their avocado trees actually did produce some fruit. Whether or not that fruit, what are we now, end of October, has actually ripened is another matter entirely, because really they are going to want a good four to five months of solid temperatures around about you know 25 degrees in order to ripen those fruit and if we're going from some seed we're going to be waiting about 20 years for them to actually produce fruit so really it's not something that we can hope for we're only going to get a novelty foliage plant unless you've got a heated greenhouse all year round and you're growing a higher mountain cultivar of avocado such as holiday or gwen which are semi-pendulous plants and also much shorter growing plants and they can survive these lower temperatures and they do produce fruit much more easily. So they potentially, as houseplants for the UK climate, will be a better choice for producing fruit. These are really ancient plants which have been using for food since the time of the Aztecs. So yeah, they're they're sort of a little bit of a, a nice thing to have in your house.
0: Joseph Ford at the Avocado Workshop. If you've been inspired by the sounds of The Autumn Show, why not check out some of our other London Shows? See rhs.org.uk forward slash London Shows for more details. Here you'll find highlights and information about shows past, present and future, including our new Urban Garden Show, which will take over from The Autumn Show in October 2018. You can also find full details of RHS events across the country at rhs.org.uk forward slash event search. Few visitors to the show, or many commuters passing Victoria Station in the preceding days, can have missed the stunning flower installations of the 2017 RHS London floral artist-in-residence, Fiona Harsa-Bazzoni. Her inspirational pieces push creative boundaries and transform what many think of the possibilities of flower arranging. The exciting thing
3: for me being the floral artist in residence is using these amazing halls here, the horticultural halls. They're two huge spaces which for somebody working with flowers is quite challenging because obviously flowers are fairly small and you've got an enormous face to to fill, to make something impactful. You need to do something really pretty grand. So that's been quite challenging and really exciting. I've absolutely loved it. It's been really good for me. So the first one I did was in February and the show fell over February the 14th. So it's over Valentine's. So I thought, well, I'm not gonna put a cheesy heart, but I'd really like to do a heart. So I did anatomical heart, but I did a really giant one. So it was three meters by three meters made out of willow because in February I don't have many flowers on my flower farm. We wove, almost like a basket, a giant anatomical heart and we used cotinus dogwood as kind of the blood arteries on the outside of it and it was very dramatic and then all around it because the flower that we do have in February is cyclamen so we had them in little cocodamas which is kind of you, you, you um, take them out of their pots and wrap them in moss and then we had them hanging all around like sort of blood drops around the heart. So it was huge. It was a massive installation. And we had the help of the floral students from the Westminster College, which was invaluable because it was so huge and it took a really long time to hang 600 cyclamen, like blood drops. The second one was in the Lawrence Hall. And you have to work with... the where you're going to put your piece of art so in this case it was going to be hung above the steps that's i knew i knew that's where it was going to be positioned so i had to design something that would fit and look good there so i made an 8 meter wave and i made that with using willow and bamboo so i made the structure and and then we again working with the students we put it all together here and we wove more bamboo and willow through it and then we filled it with spring flowers and again i did the kokodama thing so i dug up bulbs of things that were in flowers so i had hyacinth and narcissi and ranunculus and that kind of thing i think i had some anemone as well and i dug them up and i put them in in moss so it kept them fresh and it kept them alive during the installation and so they were woven into the wave that hung above the steps. The theme for Cardiff this year was magical Welsh themed and I thought well I could do a, I could do a daffodil or I could do a leek or something and I thought no no I need to do something conceptual so I did a song and I did that Uh, in conjunction with pure greenhouses and they have these um, greenhouses that don't have frames so they're just basically glass and they're very, very beautiful it's a bit like, it's like an invisible plinth so for me it was a very exciting thing to work with and then I had the, the song was a kind of conceptual idea of like Welsh music and it went through the greenhouses because they were set up next to each other a row of three and so it kind of went through as, as, as I imagined the sound would get louder and louder, it got bigger and bigger as it went through the greenhouses The flowers I grow are not like European standards so they're not straight, they haven't had to fly halfway across the world I let them do their own thing so they're much more natural they have a kind of curve to them or a movement and I think that's for me that's really important, that makes it, I feel more creative using something that's had its own life and hasn't been forced into restrictions that you need if you're growing things on a, on a really, you know, if you're doing it on a really commercial basis, you need your, the stem count and you need to grow as many as you can and they need to fit into the boxes and travel as far as they can. So I don't have to do that, so I'm growing on a much smaller scale and I can go with the curviness of what I get. 2017
0: RHS London floral artist-in-residence, Fiona Harsa-Bizzoni. As before, you can find more information and photos of her work on our website. That's almost all we have time for in today's podcast. But before we go, a word from a wildlife legend. The Talks program at the London Shows is always a big draw for visitors. This year featured renowned speakers including Roy Lancaster, Anne Swithenbank, and passionate wildlife lover and broadcaster Bill Oddie. We joined the queue of admirers waiting to share their gardening experiences with him and asked him about his new book and his lifelong passion for wildlife and gardening.
4: There's an awful lot of books about attracting birds to your garden and all that sort of thing. Lots of them, hundreds of them. Why publishers keep doing it? It's basically the same book. You can't do something new about it. And I really wanted to write about what a garden means to people, or means in this case to myself, because I know myself better than I know most people, um, because it's going to change during the years, you know. So in a way, it's a sort of horticultural autobiography, I guess, in a sense, you know, so my gardens down the earth couldn't be more different i mean i started off in industrial rochdale as um, a little boy that's how i started and uh, it wasn't a garden it was a yard a concrete yard with a big wall around it um, which uh, looked a bit like a somewhere prisoners should exercise and um nothing to do with wildlife or anything else it didn't have anything to do with anything except where to store things Uh, after that there was uh, a move to birmingham on the edge of birmingham my dad had sort of got promotion in his job as an accountant and uh, it wasn't a bad garden quite a big size garden you know getting on for a sort of half a tennis court or more that sort of thing um but the again nobody looked after it so it was all overgrown which as far as I was concerned I wasn't an avid naturalist right away but as far as I was concerned it was rather nice you know the places to hide and uh, and you used to get um down in a sort of broken lettuce frame, we used to get hedgehogs down there, which is lovely and the grass didn't do much, it was just there and it grew basically, and just grew and grew and grew and um, the only person who seemed to object to this, my dad just it's like he didn't notice the garden just didn't want to know, but my granny who lived with us um, did and she kept saying, when are you going to cut that lawn, you know, oh that lawn looks terrible, it's, it's shameful it is, you know, the neighbours laughing at it. We got all this sort of stuff, but neither Dad or I did anything until (laughs) but one day I came back from school and uh, I looked through the kitchen window and I could see this grass, which is very long by then, just waving gently. Uh, it reminds me, or would now, of a tiger, which you can't see, but the grass is moving, you know, I've seen that. Uh, but it wasn't a tiger, it was my granny. <laughs> she was on all fours, cutting the lawn with a pair of scissors. <laughs> I I I still don't think that we did much about it, but I did. It it began to seep into the bird thing because um, I started... what they're called, ringing birds, and you used to be able to buy these little plastic coloured rings. And we sort of uh, made a sort of homemade trap, which was just a like a box with a, a swivelled lid at the front and a stick propping it up, and a piece of string going behind the shed. And Granny was the stringer. Or The puller, the puller or stringer. What am I? Am I a puller or a stringer? I don't know. And I said, just Yankee. Yankee, I'm not a Yankee, don't call me that. And (laughs) I... And when a little bird would land in it, it was very successful. And I'd say, <laughs> Granny sort of yanked this thing. You'd feathers all over the place. But I caught, I caught quite a lot of birds. None were harmed. Uh, I put the coloured rings on, and Granny was the scribe, the keeper of data, as it would be called now, the age and size and, uh, and weight and all that sort of thing. So that, that garden was used, but not as a garden. Not at all. Not at all. And finally, <laughs> see, you go over hours on this one. Well, I would say a majority of the book, or half the book, um, is uh, covers by those first three or four gardens. But the, the final big chunk is about the garden I have now, uh, or more accurately, the garden I've had for 30-odd, 40 years, something like that. You know, my second wife and I, Laura, is <laughs> the wife, not me. And... Um, You know we we've lived there for a long time she's never taken much interest in it i have to admit and that's not a criticism it's just not quite her thing but on the other hand it didn't stop her commenting (laughs) so after about 10 years of leaving me to do whatever i was doing she came out in the garden one day and said oh she said bill this garden is getting ludicrous to which i said well Thank you, because that's exactly what I want. Uh, she never went there again. And uh, but it, it's it's hence the title of, of the book. And but the development in the book is about you know the ways I've changed it over the years. The silly areas within it, notably, uh, this is a bit of a cliche, but not on this scale. Notably, at least a hundred gnomes all gathered together which we um that was laura's fault as well though because we asked for at our wedding we asked not for normal wedding presents you know no cutlery and linen but um could we have a gnome bring a gnome so everybody had to bring gnomes and most of them did some couldn't bring themselves to do it and the saddest thing was when somebody would come in and say hey i bet you haven't got one Oh, and they'd say there's another six the same. But it, it backed up something I've kept going, that just having one or two things dotted around doesn't actually have much impact. And I've applied the same principle, you know. I mean, one gnome is funny, a two um, is not particularly funny. Two is sort of, yeah, OK, but if you've got a 100, that's really something. Um, but it's the same with... And false animals, of which again, I've got masses of these things. Um, Everything from sheep to a gorilla, to lots of false birds and things like this, lots of decoys on the little ponds and that sort of thing. And if you just put one there, you see, it's like people obsessed these days in their gardens. You go into a garden centre, I do fairly often, and I also come to shows fairly often. I've been to Chelsea a couple of times and Hampton Court and that sort of thing. And you see, you know, three meerkats, four meerkats, and a motion like that. Uh, You get (laughs) twenty-four. It would be far better feature if there was a little army of meerkats there.
0: Bill Audie. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, remember you can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. For now, from me, Shan Thomas and all the podcast team, goodbye.